We all long to live the life of our dreams, but few ever do. My hope is that through listening to this podcast, you feel inspired to make your own dreams come true and become a part of the 2% of people that say they are living the life of their dreams. My name is Dan Babic, and this is Dream Come True. Just start, whether it's your professional journey or it's your you know, health journey or whatever it is in your life. Just start, like just start. I'm so excited because on this episode of Dream Come True, we have one of my best friends with us. Her name is Tony Ferreira. She is Miss Brand Manager to the Stars. She's CEO of Ferreira Media, as well as one of the best publicists in town. So thank you so much for doing this with me. No, thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here with you. And I think, you know, one of the main reasons I decided to have you on, not only because I love you and I want to spend time with you, but your story in particular about where you came from and where you've been in your life to where you are today, I think is particularly very interesting because, you know, you run a multi-million dollar company, uh, very successful, managing some some of the most famous faces on Instagram and, you know, you have worked with some of the most iconic brands of all time, but it wasn't always that way. And I understand that what led you to this particular moment was actually out of pain and was actually out of a bad time. And I think um, if you want to share that story of how you kind of got into this phase of your life and then we can kind of go back from there, but I think that would be a really good place to start. Yeah. So, It was about 2014. I was ready to leave the styling industry. So we can talk about my career as a celebrity stylist for over a decade in Hollywood. And it was a transitioning period. So I ended up taking a job working to develop a clothing apparel company. And uh, during that time, um, I was not – how do you say it nicely? Um, I no longer felt comfortable with the investors that I was working with. And so I parted ways with them. And during that time, I had no – like cushion, no um, uh, safety net per se in my bank account. I was just like, I have a resume. I worked in Hollywood. Um, Someone's bound to hire me, right? And lo and behold, I went on interview after interview after interview and just got depressed after depressed because I was being interviewed by some of the big brands I've actually worked with in styling. And everyone's things were like, you know, you're too experienced. You're going to cost too much money. And so I spent about six months literally living off of my savings account, selling designer clothing on Poshmark, crying my eyes out and just like being in a woe is me situation. But one thing I've learned is that things don't happen to you, they happen for you. In that time of feeling less than and feeling unfortunate um, actually led me to start my own company. And if it wasn't for that moment in time, I would have always worked for somebody else. So sometimes things like this come into your life, a big wave crashes down and you are living penny to penny, budgeting like crazy, thinking that you're literally going to have to move home. And I was in my 30s. So that also says something. Um, And you know, you get a kind of a glimpse. And I'm so fortunate that I made those relationships in my styling career that led me to be able to have a brand management and PR firm. Uh And it was, and I guess, I I don't know when I'm going to ask you, it necessarily wasn't out of even, you know, a confidence thing of starting your own brand. It was almost like a means of survival because no one, you you had to, there there was no choice. Yeah, 100%. So that's, my life really has been from survival. I don't come from an affluent family. I don't come from, you know, rich parents per se. Um, I've had to 
you know, button up. When I first moved to California, I was dressing mannequins on Rodeo Drive and I was styling during the day or assisting a stylist during the day to really build up my career. Like there was no corners cut per se. I also went to 99 cent store. I was living off of peanut butter crackers and ramen noodle soup, like that starvation artist diet. I lived, ate and breathed that for years before breaking into the industry. Right. So you moved to LA. Well, I think you were in New York first, were you? No, I was was in LA. I I went from from Florida to LA. And and what did you have when you moved to LA? $500 to my name and like dreams bigger than the sky. (laughs) And a lot of people talk about that because I think the average um, foreign person in LA, for example, lasts six months and the average American lasts one year. So I had family and friends in Florida when I said, like, these are my dreams. I'm going to go out to Hollywood. I'm going to dress celebrities for a living. You know, even my dad was like, how much money did you save? I'm like, oh, I barely have enough for a plane ticket. You know, it's like, but I knew in my heart that, like, I've always just gotten through. So I think having that faith that I'm like, no matter what I do, if that means, like, scrubbing toilets, I would end up doing it just to get where I want to be. I think Oprah had a really good quote that said, sometimes we work the jobs that you kind of need to work to get to the job that you really want to do. And that's definitely pretty much my whole career. Like I've had to hustle and grind to get where I'm at and I'm not scared to do that. Roll up my sleeves and get dirty if I have to. So $500, like, so how do you even get it up? Like where, where does it begin with that little money or, you know, if, even if it was a bit more than so that? So I came out here to intern for a styling agency, basically okay. that repped hair, makeup and fashion stylists. And where are you living at this point? Um, At this point I'm living at, oh my God, I don't even what the hotel's name is. It's like seven... Fair, is it like it's like the Fairfield Inn or something? It's like the corner of like Seventh and like Wilton in downtown LA. Okay. It was like a hostel. Okay, so it's like a, it's like a youth hostel. Yes. Okay. I mean, I like it was literally like the smallest little. I mean, it's from a, like even this room. It's like one fourth of this room. It's like a bed and like a shower and like a toilet. That's like literally. It. And you had your own room, or yeah, I had okay. my own room. Okay. Um, and then I was a, I was basically interning, so that's what I was doing. But I was so enthralled with the industry and wanting to be a part of the styling community that I worked. I pretty much got my all my hours I needed to graduate college. Uh-huh. Um, within like the first three weeks of living here, wow, and that was supposed to be over a semester time. The internship, yeah. like the amount of hours, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So I basically taught myself the business from kind of backwards. So instead of like being out in the um, studios or the sets with the clients, I was learning the back end, the business side, how they got paid, how they booked their jobs. And that kind of propelled me to be able to do that on my own when I was ready, which literally took off within like a month. Within a month, my boss had sent me to Vegas for my first cover shoot with Instinct Magazine. That was like throwing me to the wolves. But again, great practice. And then she kind of paired me with other stylists and I had, I was with their A-list clients. And so I knew the front and the back end of the business. So when I could take off on my own, once I started building a portfolio. Yeah. And and it's totally okay. Like how, you know, my parents helped me out when I first moved yeah. to LA and they had the means to, and some people can do that. Some people can't do that. But how, how did you survive on a, on a daily basis? Because in an internship, often it's unpaid. And if it's paid, it's, I don't know, it's, it's breadcrumbs. Yeah. I mean, I started to get pays, paid pretty well, pretty quickly, like within okay. like the first two weeks. Like anytime I would assist a, um, one of their stylists on a job, I was getting paid. Or if I helped book them on that job, I made a commission off of that paycheck. Sometimes that paycheck would take 30 days to come to me though. No, no, you know, know those things. So like things got really tight in the beginning. Um, and then I had a, a great boss at that agency who then in turn let me kind of live in her house because she was pretty much traveling. So I pretty much lived above the agency in Los Feliz. Um, and I'm super grateful for that opportunity because that definitely took things, you know, 
that that took things back for me and let me have a little bit more money to be able to kind of do things with. Um, And then shortly after, I left and started booking jobs on my own and... No, and I think when you're good, because I started off in um, in PR, but it was, you know, somewhat similar there. And I was willing as an intern to work five days a week yeah. to work um, whatever hours you want. Because a lot of times people, and I guess it's somewhat of a balance, think, oh, well, if I'm not, and even, and parents tell this to their parent, um, to their children, like, how much are you getting paid? Yeah. No, my parents were the same way. My father and my mother could not understand for the longest time how the industry worked for stylists because they had come from the nine to five background uh-huh. of like nine o'clock, you're clocking in five o'clock, you're clocking out. You get a paycheck every Friday or every second Friday of the month. Um, and there I was like going like, Oh, I'm taking cash deals. I'm doing this. I mean, I did everything as from a stylist before I even had my first A-list client. Um, I was doing movies. I was doing short films. I was doing commercials. I was doing ad specs, like anything and everything to continually keep that kind of cash flowing in. And then there's like, I said, I end up doing mannequins. I end up working at different stores and club Monaco was one of my first stores I worked for, Uh um, where I was changing the mannequins. So I'd go in at like 11 o'clock at night and work until six o'clock in the morning. Then I would come home, shower, change, and then be on set at like 9am. So it was like a never ending story, but I never felt tired. I was excited. My passion kept me a flame. I was lit up. I loved what I was doing. It was a passion of mine. So never once was it a, oh my gosh, woe is me. You know, I sleeping two hours a night, if that. Um, there was just such an excitement and buzz when I first came to Hollywood. Yeah. And I think it's, it's you can do your dreams at any time. It's never too late to achieve your dreams. Ag- agree. But, I mean, I, can, I feel like I started off later. I moved to LA when I was 25. Yeah. Like I didn't move, I didn't move at 19, like after high school or anything like that, like, or 21 after college. I ended up kind of taking a little bit of a detour and then coming out at 25. And I think that was a smart play for me because I knew who I was at 25 or I had a really good, better sense, a, a better idea of who I was um, versus just coming out here in my like 18, 19, 20s and not having a grasp on life. Correct. Because when I came out, I was I was that age. <laughs> but I think, like the, as you said, the passion, if it really is your passion, and I think sometimes coming from backgrounds like I came from or you came from where you didn't grow up in LA. In and the you, entertainment in industry, industry. So yeah. for you, it wasn't second nature. It wasn't just something you wanted to do. It was something you wanted to, like you lived and breathed it and you yeah. weren't jaded. You didn't take it for granted. You were just so grateful to be there. And well, you just said yeah. something you didn't want to do, but it's almost like you had something to prove, right? Like it's like, Correct. I definitely can do this. Like I'm, I don't come from a Hollywood background. I don't come from actors and actresses and nobody in my family like this was a I mean trying to explain to my family what I did for a living was almost comical because my father is ex-military my mom worked in medical records like her whole life and there I was being like I get paid to go shopping and dress celebrities for a living and my dad's over there like what do you mean? They can't pick out their own shirt? And I'm like, no, that's my job. My job is to use my eye and my creativity to make that outfit, you know, come together. And in fashion school, I had a gift for that naturally. So it was always kind of one of those like, almost like a Hannah Montana situation where like my life in back East with my family is so far from what my life here in Los Angeles is. Yeah. And you're kind of, and you, you, you're still that person, but then you're also becoming this new person in the process. Yeah. And I think it also, it like, it made you appreciate like where you come from. Like, I'm definitely not ashamed to say like, I'm from Charleston, South Carolina and I was raised in Florida. Um, I think all of those kind of like nooks and crannies kind of make you who you are. And then, like I said, like they geared me up to be ready mentally tough, physically tough for the big city like Los Angeles, which terrified my parents when I moved out here. Yeah. And you're, you've got, we're both lucky. We've been blessed with the parent lottery. We have both yes, have great, supportive, supportive, amazing parents, but parents, 
only know what they know. Yeah. They, like, they can't teach you everything. And in this particular realm, your parents didn't know what the entertainment industry was. They never worked in Hollywood. So even though they were loving and supportive, you also had to you obviously respect what they say and you always respected them. But you had to say, I'm actually not taking your advice or I'm yes. not going to listen to you here because you don't know how that works and I'm following my intuition and my intuition is much stronger than what you're telling me. Yeah, no, 100%. My father was one of those that would be like, hey, do you need money? I'm like, no, like you'll know when I you'll know <laughs> when I need money. And then he would chime in on things like, oh, I don't think you should go to that movie premiere. I don't like I don't like who that who, who's who's doing it or whatever. And I just look at him and be like, but you don't even know that person or you don't know that director. Or you don't even know what a red carpet's even like. And so I would always kind of, kindly and politely say to him, like, you know, when I need your help, I'll ask you. But until then, like kind of butt out because I was still learning in that beginning stages of of how to navigate a set and studio, what it was like to be on a photo shoot versus a music video and all that kind of stuff. And to hear that little like voice and everyone has one, whether it's your own inner inner devil or you have a family member or a friend that's a critic, right? It's like tune, you have to tune them out because at some point you know better. Mm -hmm. You just have to have, everything has to be really quiet for you to actually hear that. And I think that's one thing that you've been really good at is following your intuition and silencing that inner critic. And you're right. I never thought of it in that particular way. Sometimes it's an outer critic. So the outer critic actually becomes your inner critic and, and your inner critic starts off telling you, you can do it, but then outer critics are telling you you can't so then your inner cr- your inner person that was great is now telling you that you're not great and um like how, how do you you know not listen to that yeah i think it just comes down to like when people tell you you can't do something i've always been the type that's like let me prove you wrong uh-huh. or like i can and watch me um i had that with friends and family who when i first moved here like oh we'll see you in like three months you'll never make it in la but my passion my drive my personality and you know this is like it's almost like you're when you bet against me, I'm about to put your nose in it because I want you to see like I can do it. And for me, it's also one of those like you can tell me I can't do something. Let me try. Mm-hmm. Let me try. Because my try is probably different than a lot of other people's tries. My try is probably also different than the tr- person who's telling me I can't do it. And that's where a lot of it comes from is when someone tells you can't do something, it's usually because they can't do it. Do it yeah. And so it's a projection onto you. Yeah. And then seeing you do what makes them feel, they're actually worried secretly that you can do it. And if you can do it, it makes them feel less than because they don't have the guts to do it 100%, themselves. Yeah. 100%. So you start off, you're interning and then you're getting paid because you're working overtime. You're willing to do everything. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. Everything and anything. And like I said, like I, I, any, any little odd end job I could do, I was doing it because I just knew like I had rent, rent, was due, right? Like at the end of the day, rent was due. And every first of the month, it was nothing going to change that. And let's be real, living in Los Angeles, coming off of, you know, 25 years old, coming out of college, working, making barely, you know, barely be able to make ends meet. Like it's expensive to live in Los Los Angeles. And that was 17 years ago. (laughs) <laughs> if that doesn't tell you where we're at. And then what I always find interesting about your particular fields and, and you know, the whole Hollywood field is, you know, you're earning barely any money. You're lucky to get a couple of dollars here or a couple of dollars there. And the same thing happened to me when I was interning at a PR company. I was willing to work overtime anytime you wanted me. So eventually they gave me, they splashed me some cash here or there. But that's what it comes yeah. down to. It, I think, and I, I've had it, so many interns over the years. And I always say one day I'm going to write a book about like interns and assistants. And I won't name anyone, of course, but 
certain ones, of course, the cream rises to the top. And it's like you and I rose to the tops because like we were willing to put in that extra effort, not just sit back and think that everything should be handed to us or that we were entitled to have anything. Oh, yeah. I'm, oh, you know, I'm only contracted to work three days and you're not paying me. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I've, heard, I've heard so many things like that. I used to get told, can't work after 6 p.m. and can't work on the weekends because that's time I spend with my boyfriends. I go, well, there goes any music video shoot in any red carpet. That's a major award show. Like, obviously you know, don't let the door hit you where the good Lord switch. No, it's so true. <laughs> and at that particular, but when you're starting off, when you get older and when you progress in your career and you get notoriety and you've, you know, put in the hard work, then you can say, oh, I'm not working weekends or. A hundred percent, but you got to put the time in. You've got, you really do have to put the time in and the commitment in and, and, and sacrifice in. And it gets noticed. Like that's the thing is they always say that hard work, like you can have anything. And it's true with hard work you know, and connections. I think that's also a key. Um, you know, you can have the life of your dream. Yeah. And even if, and, and parents in particular, and I think most parents, if they see their child working for free more than three days a week, they say you're being taken advantage of, but you got to look at the bigger picture because 100%. they're, you're probably gaining more than they are. Like they're getting what free labor, but everything you're learning and absorbing, you're learning more in, you probably learned more in that internship than you did over your four year college degree. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. In In a couple of months. Well, they always say if you're miserable in your job or bored in your job, it's really not that you're bored. It's you're not being challenged enough. And so when you're out of your job, you should be working on the job that you want. And that's kind of, at the end of the day, what, what it's all about. For me, I saw styling and fashion as a gateway into more things in Hollywood. I didn't just take it as, okay, I only want to dress celebrities for the rest of my life. For me, it was like, okay, what's next? The next thing for me was like, well, if I can dress them, why can't I write about it? So then I started taking gigs writing for Cosmopolitan and InStyle Magazine. And then I, I became the fashion editor for Beverly Hills Lifestyle Magazine. And it's like those steps because it was like, I was so good and known for what I was doing with my clientele on the red carpet and photo shoots, it was like, why not now be able to write about it and dictate the trends and talk about the trends and go to fashion week and see what's kind of current and new. And then from there, obviously into design. So, you know, I started to kind of stair step my way into the fashion industry because I didn't want to just do one thing. I'm very multifaceted. I wanted to learn the whole kit and caboodle. And as far as styling is concerned, I want people to know that you styled some of the biggest people on earth. Like it started off as an intern and then you were being employed because you were so yes. good by people like I mean the joke I mean the I mean the joke always was is like if they graced people's like hottest list, I usually had at least like five clients on there. And so like worked with everyone from Kim Kardashian, including launching Shoe Dazzle with her, which is kind of gets me into what I'm doing now, mm -hmm. to David Beckham, to Matthew McConaughey. Like I really had the pleasure of being able to work with some of the big A-listers. And people do want to know this and I we want to stay positive, but what was your best celebrity experience in that time? I would probably say Kate Beckinsale would probably be my favorite um, experience. And that was in the beginning beginning stages of my career. Um, and she's just such a lovely person. And I I tend to gravitate towards, and I'm very lucky that I had the majority of my clients, I'll say on my roster over the 10 years, be down to earth people that you wanted to have time with outside of getting them ready for a photo shoot. Like you wanted to have coffee with them. You wanted to go to dinners with them. You wanted to be invited over for barbecues, like those moments, because they, at the end of the day, this was their job, but they really had a life outside of it that actually like you gravitated towards. Did you feel um, once you kind of got into that world that you were being fooled up until that point? Because I know I found and a lot of people find when they're in that celebrity world that a lot of times, yes, these celebrities are talented and are very good looking, but they're not special. Okay. So yes, definitely on that one. Um, I think, listen, there's a reason why actors and actresses are 
actors and actresses. They put on a very good act. So yes, it was surprising that there would be a couple people that I've worked with, and sometimes they weren't full-time clients, that you know, on a movie set or on TV, you see them and they're like full of life or whatever, and then like they're super boring and have no personality um, kind of behind the scenes. Or maybe they're a little introverted or a little shy, but like they're larger than life when the cameras roll and the lights come on. Um, so you again, you learn the whole Hollywood smoke and mirrors, um, you know, even times where someone would come to set for the first time and you meet them and you're like, wait, is that that? You like do a double take. You're like, wait, is that? But after they're done hair and makeup, you know, then you see who they really are a hundred percent. And so just just kind of sum up this first phase of your life, you're, what I'm getting from this, and, and you might have yeah. something to add to this, is how the best way to succeed and the fastest way to succeed is to put your everything into it, to, to not be a diva, to yeah, do anything. Up, yeah, roll up your sleeves and get really be willing to get dirty, like in a way. Like that's what I mean. Do whatever it takes, basically, is what I, is what is what I'm saying. In in a legal way, of course. But do whatever it takes. If it means taking odd end jobs to get to where you want to be, like just know that that's your goal and that you are working towards that goal. And like I firmly believe, like every day you should wake up and when you have a goal, you should also check off the things you're list, like what's leading me to that goal and what's deterring me from that goal. Yeah. And, and why do I want that? And yeah. And what needs to be eliminated? What can I remove that's no longer serving me and serving my goal? And then when you go to the point where, you know, you're dressing the most famous people in the world and, and most people, a lot of people would think, oh, I want to stay in that. I want to do this for the rest of my life. And I, at one point I did. At one yeah. point I, I genuinely thought like, this is it. Like, this is how it's going to always be. And then I started to do, um, Shoe Dazzle came along basically in a nutshell. Shoe Dazzle came along. And I thought, wow, okay, I'm being asked now. And for people that don't know what Shoe Dazzle is. So Shoe Dazzle is now part of the like Just Fab family. Shoe Dazzle is still around. It's part of the textile group. It's um, the same people that do Fabletics and Just Fab. They acquired um, Shoe Dazzle. But Shoe Dazzle back 12, 13 years ago was a eHarmony meets Shoe Club of the Month. That's the best way I was pitched it. And I feel like that kind of sums it up. So it's like you're a member for like $40 a month. You're being sent a pair of shoes and um, uh, that, that, that are basically, yeah, that are basically customized to you through an algorithm um, that actually myself and another stylist actually helped curate for that um, particular brand. But it's one of those things where it's like, kind of custom for you. So I even had people that stopped me at the Beverly Center that apparently I picked shoes out for, but I didn't really ever touch them. It was the algorithm. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but so that's kind of what led me more into like the branding PR side is that I was on set with all of these celebrities all the time and I was watching their publicist in action. I was seeing what was happening. I had the same editor contacts. I was having to give what they're wearing for every editorial photo to that particular editor. So my Rolodex started to kind of get become pretty thick or my black book started becoming pretty thick. And I started getting like clients like Shoe Dazzle. I got another tech company, a couple other tech companies that were wanting me for my ideas. And I was like, hold up. So I can work smarter, not harder. And that's when I was like, okay, maybe it's time to make that pivot and that shift over. But then like I told you, I was kind of contracted to do a apparel line. And through that apparel line, didn't work out for me. And then I went through that phase of like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? <laughs> like, I'm basically going to be like going home to mom and dad at 30 something and being like, help. This is, just didn't work out the way that I was supposed to. Um, and then during that six months, my clients who I had styled for years were now turning to me like, hey, we did some brand deals when you were styling, which I did. Like my, they'd say, how much to have your client wear these pair of jeans or wear this shoe or wear whatever. So I was kind of brokering those deals on the side and they were like, hey, you always did such a good job. Like, why don't you have an agency or why don't you have a firm? 
And I was like, oh my God, that's not what I want to do. Like I kept being like, no. And then even my own attorney who I've known for years was like, hey, you're really good at that. Have you ever thought about doing that full time? And I'm like, again, no. I mean, I was, I guess I was a diva at that moment because I had so much um, clout in the industry that it was one of those things where I was like, no, whatever I do next has got to be super, super fabulous. And to me, that wasn't super fabulous. But now this month alone, that's why I'm happy to be here at the podcast with you, is my company turns five. My media company turns five. And it's just crazy to kind of like rewind the clock and think about what that was like. I was in a very, very bad time in my life where I literally was like, didn't want anyone to see me. I was borderline suicidal. I mean, I, I shared these things with you before. Like, um, and I think it's important for people to know that they see the magical life, but they don't realize everything that goes, you know, into it. And what's behind it? Because I understand that there was also at that time where you, you know, were we're trying to segue into a different career and you couldn't find any jobs. You, there was also a car crash, wasn't there? Yeah. So tell I me actually, a bit about that. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I, um, in 2017, I was in a car crash, um, in Los Angeles, a girl was playing on her phone and she like came crashing into my two door sports car and like just shards of glass everywhere. And I grabbed the steering wheel as hard as I could cause I didn't want to spin out. And I ended up absorbing the um, impact and I have uh, a whole plate in my hand plus seven screws. This was probably one of my most defeatist moments aside from feeling like I'm going to be homeless, you know, pretty much like prior to that. Um, cause I was right about, right around the same time. It was like me launching my business and then there's a car accident. So it's like, just as I was gaining momentum, you get into a car accident. So then it's like, okay, what are we going to do? Are we going to give up or are we going to push on? And then now I'm trying to, you know, grow a company while I'm going through physical therapy, which I don't advise, but clearly life lets you, it deals you the cards it does. So that was definitely a challenging time for me that I'm there. I am in a cast at meetings. I'm miserable in pain, you know, and um, 11 months of rehab to be able to completely make a fist again. So, So not only was I going through it mentally and physically, I was going through it emotionally and spiritually as well. So at, at, you know, at that time, especially when you were segueing into creating your own company, we kind of started on it. Now I want to yeah. move forward from that. You you said that like it was out of survival. So did you get to a point where there were only so many you, you couldn't apply for any more jobs? You weren't. Getting- I couldn't apply for any more jobs. It, I literally remember sitting on my couch um, in February of 2017 and just being like, "This is it. Like, okay, I'm gonna. I, I have enough money and savings to like last me like a couple more months, and then I can really like try. To, I mean, I've tried everything, Dan. I tried applying for like Macy's at the Beverly Center, Bloomingdale's at the Beverly Center, and every single one was like they looked at my resume and maybe I filled it out too honestly, but it was like you're overqualified. Um, you know, like other companies I went to that I actually did branding deals with prior with my clients. Like, oh my god, we'd love to have you. We're gonna hire the girl at USC because she just graduated and she's not gonna ask for as much money as you're gonna ask for. Uh, I even went to PR and marketing agencies that I was friends with. That I was like, hey, can I just like get a job with you? They're like, Tony, we love you. We know your your connections. We know that you're legit. But like, we could never pay you what you're what you're worth. And I was I was like, I'll even take a junior position because. When bills start to stack up, they start to stack up. And it's like, like, I don't how, care what I get paid yeah. at this point. I need a job. <laughs> yeah. So I'll start with the lower salary. Yeah. And yeah. Then- so I remember being on the couch Super Bowl Sunday in February and I had built a little bit of a following. So I have a client who's in the fitness industry and she basically addressed her for many of her um, workouts. So people were always asking me like where I bought her clothes from. And so I started a little blog. It was called Cardio Couture. Um, it's not really active now. I don't think anyone's really, I've touched it in probably five years. Um, but so from Cardio Couture, I started to build a fan base on Instagram. And so I was sharing where to get her outfits, looks for less. And this was just not being paid for. This was just 
me just doing it just to share. And then lo and behold, I started to gain 25,000 followers, 30,000 followers, and get 50,000 followers at the highest peak for Cardio Couture. It's nowhere near that now. So if you go look for it, do not be surprised. It's a private page. hardly ever gets used. Um, but in that time, I thought, okay, I have an audience of 50,000 people looking at me. And this is before the influencer market even really took off. And I was like, I want to sell them something. What can I sell them? And so my client who was in the fitness industry had just come off of a big program and I had pitched the idea for clothing to the, to, to her company. And they were like, no, we're not going to do it. But if you want to do it, you can do it on your own. And so without even having any clothing contacts, like meaning not knowing where to get something printed or even where to get that particular item, I sketched, because again, I have a fashion background. So I sketched a pair of leggings and it had the word obsessed down the side. And I threw it, just a sketch. I threw it on Instagram and I said, if I made these for $25, would you buy them? Now this is telling you survival. I was doing whatever it could. At this point, I had sold a lot of designer goods that I had. You're selling everything I'm you selling have. everything I can to make sure that I keep the lights on, the car paid for, you know, and food in the, food in the um, fridge. So I literally put it on there. I remember Super Bowl Sunday and literally the amount of DMs I had with women trying to give me their credit cards. And I was like, wait, this is illegal. You can't give me your credit card through DM. Like I would have to set up a website. And so I taught myself how to build a website to be able to take their credit card information. And I would print out the orders and they were just like stacks of them. And I was like, that's it. I got to figure out where I'm printing these, <laughs> how I'm getting them made. And um, yeah, that kept me afloat you know, till I figured out that it was time to do my own thing. And if you were financially secure and things were, you know, easier for you at life, you, that never would have taken off in the way that it did because you've got time on your hands. There's no, nothing pushing you to yeah. do it particularly fast. I mean, you probably wouldn't have you got- You get comfortable is what you happens. You get comfortable, yeah. Yeah. And this was a time where I was super uncomfortable and I was, and I was, everyone struggles with like being in the uncomfortable, but I think in order to grow- you have to push yourself to be comfortable in the uncomfortable. And that goes for not just your personal life, but also your professional life. I think you have to continue to push yourself out of your comfort zone. And, you know, obviously when you're in a bad place and, you know, now you're in a, in a good place. But but I could have played the victim, Dan. That's the thing. I could have played the victim, right? I think it's really, really the two choices that you have when you're in a situation like that. You can either be the victim and cry every day in a fetal position that gets you absolutely nowhere. Or you can be like, hey, I'm not the victim. Like, instead, I'm going to become the victor of yeah. a situation. People always say like, oh, well, you had all these resources. And my saying back would be, it's not about the amount of resources. It's about how to be resourceful. Result. And, do you know, and we actually all, when you think about it, um, and that almost gets into the subject of law of attraction, is when you look at there's always someone, something, there always is a resource. Some yeah. people have many more resources, but I've always described it like a car when you're buying a car. Um, all of a sudden, you never really see that car on the road, and then you're thinking about that car, and then you suddenly see lots of those cars on the road. You know, those cars were always there. Yeah. It's not like an abundance of cars came on the road uh, the moment you that you decided you wanted that car, but you're just noticing them because it's at the forefront of yep. your mind. So if you look for ways and look for resources, you'll start to see resources that you didn't realize were even there. Yeah. So then I can pivot to this. So one of the ways to kind of get me out of the darkness, because when I say darkness, I'll, I'm happy to share this. I, I want people to understand Like when I say darkness, I mean like hair in a messy bun, living in pajamas, in a bathrobe, not wanting your friends to come see you and your friends being, I had kind enough friends who would be like out of my front door being like, hey, open the door. We want to see you, make sure you're okay. And I'm like, I didn't want to see anybody. I felt so ashamed because I had such a great career. And then there I was having to like 
you know, eat humble pie, so to speak, to figure out the next move. And they'd be like, we're post-meeting food right now. Like, what do you want? Like, we're, we're going to sit out here in front of your front door until you until you open it. It's like, well, everyone that knows me knows I'm not going to let your, my friends just sit out there um, by themselves eating. So I, of course, invite them in. They're like, oh my gosh, like what's going on with you? And having to explain that is very humbling. But at the same time, like, I'm happy that like now, five years later, you know, six, five and a half, six years later, I can share that story and be super candid because it was success is not a perfect line. No. So one of the things that got me out of the darkness is what I was trying to say before was a friend of mine said, you know, what are you grateful for? And when you are in that deep, dark depression where nothing you don't, exactly <laughs> where you don't even know where groceries are coming from or like where rent's getting paid. It's such a defeatist attitude, but you are like, like you said, you go nothing like, and you just don't want to, I don't even have that conversation at that point. Cause it's like grateful, grateful for what this mess that I'm in. No, I'm not grateful for that. But it was like small things. They'd say like, were you grateful to have a roof over your head? Yes. Are you grateful to have parents that love you? Yes. yes. Are you grateful to have the dogs? And I had two dogs at the time. Are you grateful? Small things. And they'd say, just start writing down every day small things that you're grateful for. And there were some days that there would be, I have the, still have the notebook. They, it was the same thing. It was like, grateful that I have a house, grateful that I have clothes, grateful that I have food. It was like the same over and over again. But the beauty of this and the reason I'm sharing it is, is that after a while you start adding to that list, that list becomes bigger. Like something shifts in you and then you are happy that the sun is out in the morning. Because if you would have asked me three weeks prior, I was out there being like, I don't even care if the sun comes up tomorrow because you're in such a dark place that you feel like you are a, you know, a burden on the world. But if I didn't have that friend that was telling me to write down the gratitude list, I definitely would not probably be here today. And that's really sad to say that. But I think small things like that can really help shift your mindset. Yeah. And someone, I actually heard this the other day and it was, um, I guess it was a religious saying, but I think it applies to the universe or, you know, regardless of what your faith is, that if you are ungrateful for what you have, why would God or why would the universe yeah. give you more? If you're already ungrateful for what you've got, why would he give you anything more than that? Because you're ungrateful for all the, yeah. the things that you already have. So you're not going to get more if you're ungrateful for what you already have. No one's going to give something, you know, if you've got a bunch of candy and you're saying, oh, I don't like this candy, I'm not, I don't even want it. No one's going to say, well, here, have some more candy. Yeah, exactly. It's, it doesn't work that way. No. And I think we forget when you're when you're so enthralled in whatever you do and whatever the passion is that you're doing, you forget the small things to still be grateful for. Like the fact that I had a car still, you know, like I could have ended up having to sell my car. I was close to that, but like, you know, still being able to, you know, get groceries, even if it was a small amount of groceries, you know, still being able to feed my dog, still being able to like, you know, have clothing and have a couch or, or whatever, or have a sofa. It's counting the small things when life seems so big and so um, grand and so painful. It's counting the small things because the small things add up. They do. And now looking at you, you know, all these years later, I'm, and I'm not sure how you feel about it, but I'm actually so glad that you went through that because the amazing person that you are is because of that experience. And you now, you have an appreciation for other people. You have um, extreme empathy, understanding. Yeah. You're so well-rounded. You're so grounded. You're so kind. Thank and you. I don't think that you would be as incredibly you know, success aside, regardless of no, what you do. No, because you, you, you and I happen. both know working in this town, you can become entitled. You can become that that diva kind of comes into play. Um, and then for me, I think you can't appreciate the peaks in your life until you've been in the valley. And when I say you're in the valley, I mean, you have to hit rock bottom. And that was my rock bottom. That was, oh my gosh, how am I living? <laughs> I'm going to move back to Florida. This is super embarrassing. And then 
to see where I'm at five years later is completely crazy because my whole purpose for starting for our media was to serve my clients in ways that they were not being served. And that's another thing that, uh, you know, to bring it back to Oprah, yeah. I always joke, Oprah's my Jesus. I Listen, love Oprah. Oprah's my love language. Like love language. She really is. But uh, she says, and a lot of people, you know, experts say that if you find a way to do what, put what you love into service, yes. servicing others, that that is one of the best recipes well, for success. Yeah, I think success, you'll be fulfilled, right? If you can not, it can't always be about money. No. Like I've worked with plenty of clients who are not big name stars. My job is to make an investment in them to be able to help build their brand. Um, and that me- that a lot of times means I don't have the big budgets to pay me the big rates, right? But it's like, if you believe in somebody enough, like I'll make that investment and be of service to that client because in the end game, we all win, right? Like that's kind of the, that's kind of my mantra or for my, my clientele. And I started, so right around, I would say, March, April. So February, I kind of started making the clothing line. March, April, I reached out to a PR, a fashion PR firm here. And I was like, hey, can I just come in and work two days a week with you? Because I'm one of those that as much as I believe in myself, I always want to know the right and the wrong way to do something. How You came from PR. I never knew how. I, I've read many press releases, but I didn't know what a press release was or how to write one or how it's distributed. So I figured if I could start working for this woman, I could learn from her because she's one of the OGs out here in Hollywood. We won't name who she is, but um, that's kind of how I got to know PR. And so I was assigned clientele um, and helped to get them an entrepreneur, INC, Women's Wear Daily. And so being able to have the contacts I had with the editors, it was like I got to use them in a different, in a different way. So it was a short-lived experience with that PR firm. Um, and the reason it was, and why I won't name them, is the reason I left to do my own thing was because I saw how she handled business and I knew I could handle business better. So I saw, I witnessed somebody who was taking a retainer and not fulfilling the service part of the of the agreement. It was like, oh, you got them three um, press hits, only give them one this month. Only give them one because I need them to write the check for the next month. And I thought, hmm. That's not the kind of clients I want. I want a client who understands that there's going to be months in PR that you're going to have a ton of press hits. And there's going to be months in PR where there's nothing, right? So you have to be able to give that expectation to your client and have that communication. And do your best each and not try and... Yeah, you're not just trying to hustle for that retainer. And um, same thing, I had styled some of these um, names in Hollywood that were on like CW shows and whatnot. And I'm, I'm watching how their deals are being done. And I'm like, no, no, it could be done better, right? And so I think sometimes you think innovation comes from like understanding and being able to create something different and diverse. And I'm not over here trying to change the wheel in PR or branding, but what I saw was clients not being serviced and they were on a big roster of big agencies and big firms and they're this little name, right? Compared to all the big, big, bigger names that are above them. And I thought they should be able to get the same white glove treatment that the A-listers get. And so that's how my company was formed. I was like, I'm going to have a boutique firm that they are, it's accessible. I'm accessible to my talent and vice versa. I'm, they're not going through a junior publicist or an assistant to be able to talk to me. Uh-huh. So. And there you, and look where you are today. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so exciting like to see where this has all come because I had a handful of clients and I, I knew I was going to be mostly in the fitness lifestyle spe- sector. And then about two years ago, I relocated to Scottsdale, Arizona. So I have an office there now too. And when I was in Scottsdale, there's so many athletes that I was like, I need a sports division. And then now I'm working with an NFL player. So it's like, there's, again, you set those dreams and you manifest them and th- they will come true. 
And as far as you know, manifestation, I've kind of covered this a little bit on the podcast, but people kind of say, how do I manifest? And, and there's different ways that people do that. How do you manifest what you want? So some people write it down. For me, I already, I envision myself already there with no doubts. That's one of the secrets to manifestations. And honest, honest to God, that's how I got to Los Angeles was manifestation. That's how I got my place in Beverly Hills was manifestation. And I'll hit on that right now and just tell you, um, I was living in like uh, Toluca Lake area and I always wanted to live in Beverly Hills. Everybody, when you move there, you want, you like hear the 90210 soundtrack in your head. Yes. Um, but after photo shoots that were over in that area, I would literally park on North Palm Drive and I would, the beautiful purple flowers overhead, and I would literally park my car and walk the whole street all the way from Beverly all the way to Wilshire. And I would imagine what it would be like what my neighbors would be like, what it would be like to walk the dogs, what it would be like to walk to Bristol Farms across the street, all that kind of stuff. And it sounds silly, but I kind of just started to have fantasies. And honestly, I think fantasizing is definitely a key to manifestation because I kid you not, when my lease was up in Toluca Lake, a friend of mine that worked in real estate in Beverly Hills said, there is a like two bedroom, one bath off a North Palm Drive that is in your price range. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? Like, yeah, because where it, do I sign? Like, that was like, and that was the street that I literally would walk down envisioning what it would be like to live there. Isn't it funny the way it works? I can't, well, I mean, I don't, I don't want to say can't wait, but I can't wait till we do find out all the answers. I think you yeah. find out once you're dead, so I don't want to be dead <laughs> for a long time. So I don't want to say can't wait, but it's so interesting, that mystical element of life. It really is. No, I think that I think I believe in spirituality. I believe that you do good, good things come back to you. I think if you sulk in misery, misery loves company, you're going to be surrounded by more misery. Um, I do think there's a spiritual connection of the wanting and the desire and and being selflessness, selfless. And I think that also breeds into manifestation. But I think the biggest key to manifestation or like the secret, right, like is to be able to fantasize and really visualize what it's like to drive that dream car, to own that house, to have that hosting job, to, you know, write that book, what it would be like to be on tour on tour if you're an author and then be able to every single day like live that fantasy deeper and deeper until it's a reality but with no doubts. That's the key there. No doubts. No doubts. No you doubt. have to be fearless when you manifest. You can't be like, "Oh, but my brother's cousin's sister said I could never do it." Like that those voices need to be silenced. So put them on mute. Like that's exactly where they need to be. No doubts. You have to have no doubts because the universe doesn't know the difference between um, you know, when you say you want something, the minute that you say, oh, I don't think I'm good enough, it, it kind of negates um, the manifestation. And I think I know this, I struggle as far as manifesting without being too cocky. So for No, and that, I think I think you're people, supposed to dream big. Like I honestly, it's like the saying says, if you're not like if you're not scared of your dreams, you're not dreaming big enough. Big enough yeah. I truly, in my heart of hearts, believe that because I wouldn't be sitting here right now if I didn't dream big. If I didn't say, okay, you know what, I'm leaving fashion, I'm gonna do PR and um brand. I am also so fortunate to have connections in this industry that are my fellow publicists, my fe- fellow managers, my fellow talent agents. That's what I'm not, but um that supported that pivot too. Yes. Like I went to dinner with a couple friends about a month and a half ago when I was in, when I was back here in LA and they were just bragging to my assistant about my career and just being like, oh my God, she used to dress A, B, C, and D. And then, you know, now she's in, in our world, but we love that she's in our world. And I thought, wow, that's like huge to hear people I looked up to for years that have been in the industry for way longer than I have be so welcoming and accommodating and wanting to lean in and really share our resources um, for a newbie. I still think I'm five, we're five years old. So like as a publicist and brand manager, I'm still new to the, the industry. I'm very seasoned because of my contacts. But other than that, 
I'm definitely still new in the game. And do because some people manifest this way, and I haven't done this, but I've even thought about doing it. People say they have something to others when they don't in order to manifest it. So I spoke to a woman the other day that said that she was on the Disney Channel if, when she wasn't. Okay. And but I've always I've I haven't done that because I'm like I don't want to be a lie I don't want to tell people I've I feel like in the industry it's very touchy touch, touchy right especially if you have a representation it's like because then she's like phone calling excuse me so and so was she really on the Disney Channel everybody in this industry is so curious to know your resume I think you have to be really careful of who you're saying that to I feel like that's something you say in private to yourself like, and to yourself you say oh, I've got this to myself yeah. you don't tell everyone I've got a million dollars when you don't but you tell myself I've got yeah. a million dollars like you, yes. yeah. Yeah. I'm I, yeah I'm money I always say stuff like money flows freely to me I attract money like that kind of stuff I live in abundance not scarcity it's just shifting the words and like I get just said to you at the beginning of the podcast like the things that happened to me in my life and how things have unfolded by no means were they the quote unquote manifestations I thought they were going to be but it's so much better mm-hmm. it's so much better than what it was because things happened um for me not to me and that's a really that's a good, another good way of when you're in those depths of despair you know you said look for the lessons look, look for the f- lessons yeah what is this trying to teach me and it's, it's tough i know when you're like i don't want to leave you better get rid yeah. of the ego because yeah. that, that's where your ego's there and the ego serves a purpose it, it's there to protect you you wouldn't be alive without your ego but at the same time like put the ego aside and really be humbled enough to, and I think again, when you are living like where you're like, oh my God, the electricity better not turn off next week. I'm getting, you're getting all these late notices. You see the red, you see the red writing on the bills. Um, I think that again, just serves its purpose in your life as to, you know, look, f- like look, f- look for the good, the lessons, look for the good. There's always something good. Like I think um, my grandfather always said like, look for the silver lining. And uh-huh. it's sometimes so hard to see that in a, in a, in a storm. But there's always a silver lining. And the, and this too shall pass. This too like, shall pass, yeah. It's really true. Yeah. And they always say, and that's I think you're living that quote, is that, you know, the darkest moment comes just before the dawn. A hundred percent. And the dawn is amazing. <laughs> it is. It is. So obviously things are going really well for you career-wise and you've really changed the tra- trajectory of your life. But what is it that you still struggle with? <laughs> Oh, goodness, Dan. You're like, oh, where do <laughs> I begin? No. Let me just make sure. Is this Dan or is this Barbara Walters? Because this I feel like that Barbara was, I, Walters. I feel like, yeah. I feel like this is a very Barbara Walters question where you're like going to start like um, tissues, please. Tissues. Um, yeah, what are, you, what, what are you still working on? Because you've, I think in this career aspect, you've turned done the hokey pokey and turned yeah. it around. But we're multifaceted. So what is something that even not struggle, but what, do you, what is something that you're really trying to work on in an area that you... So I'm definitely working on personal development. And right now I'm trying to, ba- to balance my masculine feminine energies. And I think you know this very well. Like um, dating in the past has always been... Um, maybe I've not been dating the most masculine of men, which is not bad, but like, um, for what I do and for who I am, I definitely, um, look to like my father, my grandfathers as role models because they led their families. Mm -hmm. They were protectors. They were providers. They led their families. Um, so in, I guess the, the area that I need the most improvement in is like love, but Mm -hmm. that also comes from a lot of personal development and learning to love myself, which I'm on that journey every single day. That journey does not have a destination. That journey is consistent and forever. And I've learned to embrace that. Um, but yeah, I would say balancing masculine and feminine energies, because when you do what I do for a living, you are in a male dominated industry and it is very, you have to be very masculine and be very aggressive when you're brokering deals or trying to get leads in different editorials. Um, but I'm actually very feminine. I love everything that's girly. I love the flow of a feminine energy. But so many times in my relationships, I've had to be more masculine because I'm happy to let somebody lead, 
but the majority of men that have led in my life have led me in the wrong direction. Direction, yes. And it's also something you're comfortable in because you are a leader in your business life. It's You can just play that role quite easily yes. in a relationship. Yeah. It's really hard to like relinquish control. And I'm seeing somebody now where he's definitely challenging me more to like relinquish and let him lead. Um, and when I do... It's so powerful and beautiful that I'm like, oh, my God, this is how it's supposed to be. Um, it's very different than what I've had before, where I feel like I have to be the masculine. I have to be the one to take control and the one that makes all the plans. And for what I do for a living, it's exhausting because I'm doing that and scheduling and making plans for my clients 24-7. And then there I am having to plan out and execute and, and, and do everything in my personal life. But yeah, yeah. yeah it's we're, getting, like, we're getting better, Dan. We're getting better. We're getting better. We're getting better. But I just think it's amazing. And I, I think when people hear your story about being in that depths of despair – um, people like you because you think that no one else is going through that, and you think that there's something wrong with you, and no one else understands. Well, I think we miss a beat here, especially in society. And I'm hoping that, like, between your podcast and some of the other organizations out there, like, we need to have real talks about mental health. We do because people get there are times where people get depressed and they they also have anxiety. And I'm a high functioning, I have high functioning anxiety. Um, I think working in Hollywood, you kind of have to, but it's one of those things where it's a a normal a normalcy that we tend to shadow and we put it in the shadow and we don't want to talk about. Um, but mental health overall and being able to share stories and lean in. And it's hard. It was like, I think if you would have asked me to do this podcast four years ago and said like, Tony, like you would have asked me like, Tony, were you ever suicidal? I would have been shy and ashamed to talk about it because it's not it's not pretty to talk about that part of your life. But I also think it's really necessary. And you would think, oh, what will people think of me? Yeah, because yeah. like, you, you're so scared to be like judged by it. But I think a lot of us go through those hard times. And if one person listening to this podcast is like, wait a minute, like I'm in that spot. She's saying gratitude list or whatever. If I can give you one tool to move forward, like to save a life, like because I'm telling you, I was in a such a bad place that I was looking at. I mean, I don't think I could have ever followed through with it. Um, but I was literally thinking of ways mm -hmm. to like end my life. And that's definitely a really dark place to be in. It's, it's as dark as it gets. Yeah. It's as dark as it gets. And super I, grateful to have friends that saw that and they were not going to let that happen. No, no. And I, I even look at you now and even in the last year, like it's just, you just become stronger and stronger and, and more incredible every year. And I think even a year ago, I, I even know you did recently did a ma magazine spread <laughs> You know, like I think I forget, so embarrassing. I forget exactly what it was, but it was like the, you know the, the top women in Arizona that are yeah, women it. to watch. I was women it was so so Scottsdale Magazine. They honored um I think it was like fifty women um and I was one of the ones selected as a woman to watch, which was such an honor for me. And I've been I've done press before as a celebrity stylist, as a designer. So this was a little special because I started to get a lot of. Um, press for my for PR, which sounds so weird to say that because it's like normally I'm getting press for my clients. So then there I am being asked questions and being asked to do interviews. And I'm like, whoa, no, hold on. In the past, I've always said no because it always felt very awkward to me. And also, I never wanted my clients to ever be like, oh, She's my publicist hungry. is trying to be famous. And that's not, I've always been comfortable being behind them and making sure that they're accommodated and I'm serving them. But Something kind of switched in me, and I, I always say the desert's a healing place, so I left L.A. as a full-time, and I come back and forth about every other month or so with my clients, but something healing in the desert to allow me to do some of that personal growth and that personal development even deeper than I even think I thought I needed, and then it was just like, why not? Like, why not? I, I do have a story to share, and I do, and it is something that is like, you know, there, there is, it's helpful. There is 
you know, peaks and valleys. It's not just sunshine and rainbows, you know, 24-7. And then I was actually asked to be a part of the So Scottsdale Women to Watch magazine at the year prior to this year. And I said no because I was coming out of a relationship. And Dan knows who I'm talking about. I was Uh coming out of a relationship. And I just felt so defeated. I didn't feel worthy. I didn't feel worthy of love. I didn't feel worthy of being any kind of attention on me. And so I told them, like, sorry, scheduling conflicts. I can't do the shoot. And usually, like you know, in the industry, you, know, you want to not say no to those opportunities because sometimes that door does not come. You don't. No one comes knocking on that door again. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. The publisher came knocking again this past year and was like, "Hey, I know last year didn't work out for you. Would this year work out for you?" And there could have been a million excuses of why I said no. Like, and your anxiety, because oh, I remember talking yeah. to you about it. You're like, "Will you help me pick up my outfit?" <laughs> yeah, you're like, "Oh my god!" I'm like, "Should I do?" It? I was like, "Of course," but you you wanted to do it, but there was that mental health aspect yeah. of your anxiety telling you that part that yeah critic saying yeah, no no you're, you should you know you don't deserve that recognition you don't you know you in front of the camera like why would you be in front of the camera and I had again silence those voices and just be like why not like why is this saying why why not and that I couldn't figure out a reason why not that was like actually legit correct and then that was kind of like okay you know what if I'm gonna do this I'm gonna go all out so I hired hair and makeup. I actually got a hotel to to you know to the location, and um, I'm really happy that I took that time. And then that kind of geared me on to like you talking about a podcast. Um, you know, can I interview you? And I said no to you in the years before. I was like, no, no, no. I don't know if I want to do anything or, t- or share my story. But I feel like this is a year of saying yes more to those opportunities to share about my company and share about what we do, and you know, kind of share my personal good, bad, and the ugly. Yeah, and I even remember and. Talking and I, I've had this as well because I've battled with my weight, and a lot yes. of people are surprised because I'm quite thin yep. now. But I've battled with my weight, and I used to think, and I know that you have been on your own health journey, yep. and and you have had the same thing as me, where you think that you're only worthy of doing something if you're a certain size, a certain size, or you're like everything's perfect, everything has to be like 100 perfect. Otherwise, I yeah. I can't otherwise, do it. otherwise, it, otherwise, and I. I can't even tell you the amount of times in Hollywood when I was a stylist, I turned down segments on E and Access Hollywood and Extra TV as, you know, like, you know, the why red is the hottest color or whatever, because maybe my maybe my client graced the, you know, carpet in a red dress. And like I was asked to commentate and how many times I said no because I was heavier and I didn't feel good about myself and I didn't think that I deserved to be in front of the camera. I also had casting directors. I was cast for a show that was on Style Network back in the day. And I had a horrific experience with that where um the casting director said, Oh, you have a really pretty face, but like you're a little too thick for TV. And it was like traumatic. Um, I think coming into your own, again, as you get older, as you get more seasoned, it's things like that. Like, there's never going to be a perfect time. And you hear that quote all the time. And I'm sure you're listening to this now being like, oh, I heard that quote. My mom told me that quote. My grandma. It's truth. There's truth behind that quote. There if will not never, now, when? Yeah. If not now, when? But also, there's never going to be a perfect time. So again, you're imperfect. So try stop trying to work towards perfection. You'll never reach that goal. Be comfortable in who you are in every aspect of your life. And you don't have to be fully healed no. to to achieve your dreams. Well, you I don't, don't. Th- I don't think there's even a such thing as fully healed. No. I, don't, I, I've not, I, I don't honestly think, I think every trigger that you've had in your whole life comes back to you at some point. It's like a test from the universe to see how, far, how much um, development you've done on yourself and how much work. I think, I truly think healing is a journey. It's not a non-destination. It isn't. So, I just have loved having love you. you on. I, I know, love I fo- it so I much. I totally forgot the cameras were even on. I'm like over here just like having a conversation with my friend. I have. And before we do go, and you have covered it, but I, I just want to ask it more specifically, what is the best advice that you've ever been given? Just start. Just start. Just start. Like that 
I think when all the fears and like the what a coulda, shouldas, just start, whether it's your professional journey or it's your, you know, health journey or whatever it is in your life, just start. Like, just start. Just start. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Tony. I've loved having you on. It's like, it feels like it's gone so quick. I'm like, oh my God, we're already like at it like an hour. So I love you. I adore you. And come back anytime. And thank you for doing this. Thank you. Love you. Love you too. (laughs) Yay. Yay. That was so good.